0: Wow, I can't see anybody. Uh, thank you very much, Sam, for the invitation to, to be here today. Um, I, I'm going to talk to you about bees, which might seem a little odd. Uh, and I'm still not quite sure how I fit in with the rest of the day. So Sam told me not to say that when I came out. But anyway, um, I, there are some more general themes that will emerge as I, as I go on. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a biologist at the University of Sussex. I've been studying bees um, for... 20-odd years. Um, and the first thing I need to tell you is that there are lots of species of bee. Um, I think many people think there's just one, and it lives in a box and it makes honey. Uh, if you think about it, you might acknowledge that there's at least two, because there are things called bumblebees as well as honeybees. Um, but actually, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There, there are, in, in Britain, about 270 species of bee. In the world, 20,000-ish uh, species of bee. Uh, and they come in all sorts of weird and wonderful shapes and sizes. And, and they're all important. Uh, there are mining bees, there are leaf-cutter bees, there are cuckoo bees, there are, this is a thing called the blue-banded amygdala, there are orchid bees, um, stunning things. Um, uh, there are things that look like bees that aren't bees, and, and to the intense embarrassment of the authors of this book, that's actually... That's a fly. Um, I, I should... I should say the authors didn't see the cover before, the, the publishers put it together. 4,000 copies were printed. <laughs> Never mind. Um, anyway, the ones, the ones that I study are, are these, these the bumblebees. They're, they're, they're my main sort of focus. The big, furry, stripey, kind of cartoon bees. If you ask a child to draw a bee, they'll draw something big and fat with yellow and black stripes. Um, Bumblebees are really important. In fact, all bees are really important. They all pollinate something. They pollinate wildflowers. They pollinate uh, crops. They've been doing that for 10,000 years since we started growing crops. Um, And bumblebees are particularly good at certain... Different bees tend to pollinate different flowers. Um, Bumblebees are particularly good at uh, a lot of our garden vegetables. Things like runner beans are almost all pollinated by bumblebees. Strawberries, raspberries, blueberries. And tomatoes. Um, Every tomato you've eaten... Since the late 1980s was almost certainly pollinated by a, a bumblebee, which i 'll briefly return to later. Um, so, so bees are important uh, to both ecologically and economically, um, and hence we should be really concerned that, that some of them are disappearing. Uh, three British species of bumblebee have gone extinct in, in Britain. Um, let me just show you so this shows you the distribution of a thing called the great yellow bumblebee. Uh, used to be found all over Britain in the first half of the 20th century, um, but during the 20th century it, it, it disappeared from England and Wales, and is now only found in the far north uh, and west of Scotland. And there are lots of other species that have done similar things. Uh, so something is, is wrong, sadly, with our, with our bees. Um, it's not just in Britain either. This is happening elsewhere in the world. So this is, this is Eastern United States. Uh, I think. Called the rusty patched bumblebee, very pretty thing, that used to be really common throughout that, that huge area. And the red dots show places where you can find it today. It's, it's declined in abundance by 99% or, or more in the last 20 years. Um, so something is amiss. Uh, what is it exactly that's causing these declines? Um, well, it's, the biggest one is its loss of habitat. We used to have lots of flowery meadows, we used to have about 7 million hectares of hay meadows and chalk downland in Britain, um, which were full of flowers. It's not a very good picture, but top right, there's one of the remaining fragments. Um, During the 20th century, we we destroyed 98% of that habitat, so there were far fewer flowers. Most of it was turned into cereal fields or silage fields. And so if you take a train journey across Britain, you see lots of green, but very few flowers. Um, And from a bee's perspective, and actually from the perspective of lots of other wildlife, that was pretty catastrophic. So, uh, uh, there are also a couple of other reasons which I'll briefly come to in a minute. Um, But if we dwell on this, so we used to have tons of these beautiful hay meadows full of flowers. And as I say, nearly all of them uh, have gone. Other countries had their own versions. This is a Californian uh, uh, flower-rich grassland. And you can see in the distance what what most of it's been turned into. And in fact, if you go onto to Google Earth, you can, you can kind of tour the world and see what different places look like. And an awful lot of it looks like this. Um, there are no flowers. If you're a bee, this is, this is not much fun. Of course, th- this is how we produce food. We've adopted a model of food production which involves large-scale monocultures of crops um, uh, which, which do produce food. They support uh, the, 7 billion of us or whatever there are. But the price we pay is that we've converted lots of uh, habitat that used to have lots of wildlife into... So this is we're just jumping around Europe here, and then if we cross over to North America, it looks much the same. Um, Huge expanses of monocultures um, uh, to support human life, but if we go down this route, as we have done, we have to accept that that's going to have a big impact on wildlife, as it has done and is continuing to do. So that's habitat loss, uh, the the biggest kind of thing that's hit bees in recent years. But then that previous slide mentioned a couple of other things. One is disease, which is a complicated subject. Um, But bees have lots of natural diseases uh, and parasites that attack them. Um, But we've made things much worse by moving their diseases around the world. We didn't do it deliberately, but accidentally, when we moved honeybees uh, from country to country... Uh, We spread their diseases with them. Um, So we took honeybees, which are a native of southeastern Europe. We've taken them all over the world. We've taken them to the Americas, to Australia, and so on. And in doing so, we took lots of bee parasites and diseases with them. And they're not just diseases of honeybees. They'll spread to wild bees, like bumblebees and so on. And that means that the wild bees are then being exposed to diseases they don't have any resistance to. And that's having some catastrophic effects. The biggest and most uh, dramatic example is in South America, where at the moment, um, accidentally, or actually no, deliberately introduced European bumblebees. Uh, they accidentally uh, were contaminated with European bee diseases. Uh, and so these things, they're called buff bumblebees, are spreading across Argentina and Chile right now. Um, carrying European bee diseases, and the native South American bumblebees are being wiped out in exactly the same way as happened 500 years ago with the humans when we took European diseases and and the native American peoples had no resistance to them. Um, So we've moved diseases with honeybees, and then more recently, uh, there's a a global trade in bumblebee nests, which are reared. That thing top right is a nest of a bumblebee uh, reared in a factory Uh, About two million are reared every year, and they're shipped around the world to put in glass houses to pollinate tomatoes. But again, unfortunately, a lot of these things have diseases in them. Uh, In fact, you can buy them to put in your garden. You can buy a bumblebee nest from a factory in Europe full of bee diseases for the lovely price of £150. And and please don't, because all you're doing is introducing a whole load of nasty stuff to your garden. Okay. Okay. The third one, which is the one I'm going to dwell on longest, um, of these drivers of bee declines, is is pesticides. Um, Now, so this complicated table here just shows you the the pesticides applied to an oilseed rape field near the university where I work uh, in East Sussex. Um, uh, It's a perfectly normal oilseed rape field. It's typical of of any arable field in, in Britain. And so this was a crop that was planted in August 2012. And these are the different chemicals that were applied to that crop before it was harvested in June 2013. Um, 22 different chemicals. Two of them are fertilizers. 20 of them are pesticides. They have all sorts of wonderful names. Um, uh, there, are, there are herbicides and molluscicides, insecticides, uh, fungicides. And they give them the, the, the it looks a bit like um, if any of you watched Gladiators in the 1990s, it looks a bit like the cast of Gladiators. Um, Shadow was definitely one of them. But then, then poor old Gandalf is now uh, an insecticide, apparently. Um, anyway, it's an awful lot. I was, when we first gathered these data, we just asked the farmers to tell us what they applied to each field. I was quite surprised by how many pesticides there were being used. Um, it struck me as a lot, and I would kind of say to you, if you were growing food in your garden, growing vegetables or fruit or whatever, um, would you be comfortable putting 20 different pesticides onto it and then feeding it to your kids? And I think most people wouldn't, but that's, this is standard practice in, in farming. Um, in fact, if, if this was the, the, were the data for an apple orchard, the list would be about three times as long. Uh, we put an awful lot of pesticides onto our crops and that has consequences for us as well as for bees now from a bees perspective I've highlighted the ones that we know to be toxic one way or another to bees and there's quite a lot of them Um, but my my recent research and a lot of attention of the media and other scientists has been on one particular type of pesticide uh, insecticides called neonicotinoids Uh, and this crop was was treated with with one of these it's a thing called fire which is right at the top it's it, uh, it was applied to the seeds of the crop before it went into the ground. Uh, and there's quite a lot of evidence that, that that particular insecticide might be particularly harmful to bees. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. So those blue things, those are oilseed seeds. The farmer buys them pre-coated with uh, this insecticide. Uh, they're called neonicotinoids. They're neurotoxins. They're chemical relatives of nicotine. Um, uh, but synthetic uh, compounds—they're um, glued to the seed, to the seed—and the farmer just all he has to do is sow the seed. He doesn't have to do anything else. And they're water-soluble, and when they get, the seed goes into the ground, they dissolve into the water around the, 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 the seed. And as it germinates, it, the idea is it sucks up the chemical. And they're systemic; they go to all parts of the plant, and they make it poisonous to any insect that comes along and eats the plant. Which is, which is exactly what a farmer wants from. An insecticide and he doesn't have to do anything so great from a farmer's point of view so they prove really popular they were introduced in 1994 in britain and this just shows you how the, the amount of them applied to britain has increased over time those are the different name the five different types of neonicotinoid it doesn't really matter um, they're really phenomenally toxic to insects um, so one of them the, one of the, the first one that was invented is called imidacloprid um, and you, we measure how poisonous these things are to, to um, do anything uh, via an LD50, the lethal dose that kills 50%. Uh, and it takes four nanograms, four billionths of a gram of, of imidacloprid to give an LD50 to a, to a honeybee. Um, to put that in context, that means that one teaspoon, five grams, is enough to give an LD50 to one and a quarter billion Honeybees, and we're applying about 100 tons of this stuff to the British landscape every year, and every other country in the world is using them as well. Um, just for comparison, I've put up the LD50 for DDT there. DDT is something most people have heard of. as a, they were, It's long since been banned as being very harmful to the environment, and I'm not suggesting for a second we should go back to using it, but, but it's, um, it's about 7,000 times less toxic to bees than this new generation of, uh, of insecticide. You can also buy them to spray in your garden. Completely untrained people can pop down the garden centre and get some neurotoxin to spray on their flowers, which strikes me as slightly bonkers. Um, And also, if you've got a dog or a cat, you probably drip stuff onto the back of its neck uh, every month. Your vet will advise you to do that. And that's actually a pretty big dose of of a neonicotinoid if you buy this stuff, Advocate, which is the leading brand um, it's enough, a, you apply enough every month to a medium-sized dog to... to uh, that's the equivalent of the LD50 for 60 million honeybees, or, this is a bizarre statistic, 60 partridges. Now, um, <laughs> that doesn't matter, um, really, as long as 60 partridges don't come and eat your dog, which seems unlikely. Um, But nonetheless, there are kind of questions of, do you want to be using neurotoxins in your house, dripping them onto the back of your dog in really quite large amounts? It seems perhaps not an entirely optimal thing to be doing. And this, I I can never resist showing this slide. This This is a special promotion. We're, people often joke that the Germans don't have a sense of humour. This is a German company, and they, they're free seeds for bees with your bee-killing insecticides. Uh, you, can, you can grow lovely flowers to attract all the insects and then kill them really efficiently, um, perhaps. Uh, anyway, so... Sorry, this is, some of this looks a bit like a, a boring science lecture. Bear with me. Um, I got interested in this four or five years ago, this, these pesticides and whether they were hurting bees. And no one at the time had really studied bumblebees. Uh, which was our speciality. So we set up a a simple experiment, and you don't need to read this. Um, We just got bumblebee nests, and um, we either gave them healthy food, or we gave them uh, pollen and nectar that we'd uh, laced with neonicotinoids at the concentration found in the the pollen and nectar of a treated oilseed rape crop. Um, uh, Or we gave them twice that concentration. So we had three groups, controls and then two treatment groups. Uh, We we fed them that food for two weeks and then we put the nests outside and we let them look after themselves and we just waited to watch them to see what happened. And The control nests grew bigger than the ones treated with the pesticides, perhaps not entirely surprising, but there you go. Um, And um, The control nests produced many more queens at the end of the year, so bumblebee nests have an annual life cycle and they they die off at the end of the summer, but they leave behind young queens. So queen production is all important. And there's, a, there's an 85% difference between the number of queens produced by the, health, the control nests and even the low treatment of pesticide. Um, so that, that, that kind of was the first bit of really strong evidence that these things might be ha- affecting bumblebees. And since then, there's been lots of other studies which show pretty unequivocally that, that they really are harming or likely to be harming wild bumblebees. But I should just say that I'm not saying for a second that that pesticides are the the biggest problem that bees face. Actually, the problem for the poor bees is all these different stresses being placed on them from different directions. So there aren't enough flowers, so they're hungry, they're being exposed not just to these neonicotinoids, but to lots of other pesticides, some of which are toxic as well. And they're having to cope with these non-native diseases that we've moved around the world. And these things don't act independently. There are synergies between them, and without boring you with all the details, um, just as one example, um, someone recently discovered that, that really tiny doses, sublethal doses of neonicotinoids uh, impair the immune system of bees so that, so that viruses can replicate more rapidly. So your bees might seem to die of a viral disease, but the ultimate cause may be that they were stressed by the, the pesticide in the first place. Um, so the, the bees are being squeezed from all directions, and, and that really is why they're in trouble. What we really need to avoid is this. This is kind of, it looks rather attractive, but this is bee Armageddon. These are people in southwest China hand-pollinating their apple and pear trees because there are no bees left in this part of the world. They've wiped them out. Um, And in China, labor's quite quite cheap, and this is a really high-value crop for them, so they can just about afford to hand-pollinate it and send their kids up to do the higher branches. But uh, you can't really imagine a farmer in this country hand-pollinating his oilseed rape. So uh, we need to avoid this happening elsewhere in the world. OK, so I've talked quite a lot about bees, probably more than you were expecting to hear about bees today. Um, and, uh, but this is a part of a bigger story, or at least it's led me to become interested in much bigger issues. Um, So it's not just bees that are declining. Actually, wildlife around the world is declining. In Britain, we have really good data sets for butterflies and birds and moths, and to a lesser extent for bees uh, and beetles. Um, And all of them, more or less, are are in decline. Um, It was recently estimated there has been roughly uh, a 50% decline in the total number of butterflies in Britain in the last 40 years. In fact, a rather similar statistic, the World Wildlife Fund recently tried to estimate how the total number of vertebrates living in the world, excluding people, has changed, and they reckon that it's halved since 1970. So there are half as many animals, what people often call vertebrates animals, leaving the insects out for a second, um, fish, amphibians, mammals, birds and reptiles, half as many individuals of them in the world as there were when I was five years old. Um, which I find absolutely terrifying. Um, so, so our wildlife is declining, um, and we need to question why, because um, particularly, I, I talked about this, this, the way that we changed farming and how that drove declines of bees, how we lost all these lovely flowery habitats, and not just actually flowery meadows, but lots of other habitats were destroyed in the drive to increase food production, which really kicked off in the Second World War. Um, but we stop doing this now. We don't actually rip out... Well, we don't pay people to rip out hedges and drain marshes and plough up lovely flower-rich grasslands anymore. We actually pay farmers to do the opposite. We pay farmers to replant the hedges. We paid them to pull out 30 years ago. Um, and yet wildlife is, is still declining, um, uh, which is a cause for major concern, if you ask me. Um, Now, I'm not suggesting that the cause of those declines are all to do with these pesticides, but there's a a good argument to be made that they are contributing. So to come back to these neonicotinoids, they're they're used as a seed dressing, as I explained, mostly. And and so the seed goes into the ground, and and then the the seedling sucks up the pesticide. That's the idea. Unfortunately, it actually turns out they only take up about 5% of these things, and the rest of them are going into the soil where they can persist for years and can accumulate. They're leaching into the ditches and streams next to the fields. And because they can be readily taken up by plant roots, that's how they're supposed to work, it, it, they can be taken up by field margin flowers and the hedgerow plants themselves. Um, and we just recently published a, a study just a couple of weeks ago where we screened um, pollen and nectar and leaves and soil and so on from, from uh, farms um, in the southeast of England. And it basically most of the wildflowers and the hedgerow plants and the soils and the streams are now contaminated with neurotoxins, uh, which can't really be a good thing, if you ask me. So... You might say, okay, so we use pesticides. We use, we use quite a lot of pesticides. Um, but maybe we need to use all these pesticides to produce food to feed everybody. Because there's lots of us and the number of humans is increasing. Um, so, so you need to balance the harm you might do to the environment by using pesticides against, against the economic benefits, the, the need of people for food. So... One might then ask, okay, so for these particular insecticides, how important are they? How would yields change if you stopped using them? Um, And the funny thing is, you can't find any evidence. Um, In fact, when I started looking into this, it becomes clear that actually farming practices are not based on evidence at all. In medicine, there's a big drive, evidence-based medicine. You can't find any evidence in farming at all. So there are no studies showing what, although there weren't any studies until very recently, showing what crop yields would be with and without these seed dressings or with and without any of those other pesticides in that list. Um, All we can say is that organic farming, where they don't use any pesticides, get about 80% of the yield of conventional farming. But we don't know which of those pesticides are really vital and which ones aren't. The European Union recently proposed a moratorium, a a two-year ban on the use of these neonicotinoids on flowering crops because of worries about what it was doing to bees. And when they proposed that, the agrochemical industry said that this would be a disaster for farming, that farmers couldn't grow crops without these things, that they would lose... uh, 17 billion euros a year in lost crop revenues uh, without these chemicals. But nonetheless, the European Union did impose a moratorium that started in 2013. And the strange thing is that actually crop yields were higher than ever in 2014 and 15, without chemicals, which industry had told us we desperately needed in farming, which I think raises some big questions about the other chemicals that they tell farmers that they need. Um, in fact, just recently, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, they announced they'd done, they'd done some of their own field trials, and it turned out that using these chemicals on soybean, which is the second biggest crop in North America, um, doesn't actually work at all. There's no difference at all in the yield. But farmers were spending $176 million a year on a, on a seed dressing that was totally ineffective because they'd been told by their agronomists that this was a good idea. Um, So, people say to me, at this point, farmers aren't stupid, they wouldn't waste their money on things that don't work. Um, Well, actually, I think we all waste our money on things that don't work all the time. We're all susceptible to buying, apparently there really is armadillo repellent, but it doesn't work. But the others are perhaps more familiar examples of things that that weren't entirely effective one way or another. But people spend money on In fact, I would say more broadly, our whole whole economy is based on persuading people to buy crap that they don't really need. Um, But anyway, to come back to to farmers, farmers have no source of independent advice. 81% of agronomists in the UK are working on commission for pesticide companies. So all the farmer's advice is, yes, use this pesticide, use this pesticide. There are some obvious parallels with, with medicine here. Um, and the poor farmer doesn't have any good advice available to him, any independent advice, as to which pesticides he really needs and which ones he could do without, which is a pretty terrible situation, given the, the likely harm that these chemicals may be doing. to to the environment. So, to come back to... I'm I'm nearly finished, by the way. How are we doing for time? We're all right. Um, Come back to this question. Do we just need to accept that this is the only way to feed the world? I think many of us, most people believe that this kind of modern farming that we've all got used to, these huge fields of bright green crops, are the only way that we can feed the future population. There's going to be 9 or 10 billion people by 2050, uh, the FAO recently calculated that we need to increase food production by 70% to feed those people. Uh, and most people accept that we're just going to have to do even more of this if we're going to feed all those people. Um, but I, I actually think we should question that. Um, so, firstly, you can't help, most of you will have seen Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's uh, War on Waste series on television. Um, we, we do all of this intensive farming, we destroy all this beautiful habitat for wildlife, and then we throw away something like 35 or 40% of the food that we grow that way. So, which is absolutely insane. If you could tackle some of that waste, then we wouldn't need to farm so intensively. Um, actually, we already grow enough food now in the world to feed the human population we will have in 2050, if we could just stop wasting so much of it. Um, another obvious point um, is that we eat a lot of us eat way too much food. Um, this is what happens if you eat too many of those cupcakes that you were just having at coffee time. Um, so uh, I, I heard a, there's a guy called Tim Benton, who's a professor of food security, at, uh, I think he's at Leeds, talking the other day, uh, and I don't know quite how exactly this calculation was made, but he reckoned that less than... Uh, Less than half of the world's population have a healthy diet, whatever you exactly mean by that. Some people are malnourished, and quite a lot of people are overnourished. They actually have a very poor diet because they're eating way too much. Um, So again, if we could educate people not to eat so much food, not to eat so much meat, which we all know is a very inefficient way of feeding the world, then actually we wouldn't need to grow as much food. And again, we could perhaps rationalise pesticide use, farm in a slightly less intensive way, and leave some room for wildlife, um, as well as for, um, as well as feeding people. Okay, Um, just to broaden this out a a little bit further, um, actually, you could argue that if we continue down this route of very intensive farming, that actually, ultimately, people that will bring us to a point in the future where people are starving. Um, because we are undermining the ability of the planet to support us, the loss of bees is a pretty obvious example. I mean, Einstein supposedly said that if, man, if, if the bees were to disappear, then mankind would have four years left to live. Um, I'm sure he didn't say that. It seems an unlikely thing that Einstein would have suddenly come out with. Um, But nonetheless, it's an interesting point. I think it's probably not strictly accurate. I'm sure not everyone would be dead within four years. But bees are responsible for a third of the food we eat. Or put it another way, if there weren't bees, then we wouldn't have a third of the the food we eat. And that includes most of our fruit and veg. Um, So if we're losing bees, that clearly threatens the ability of the planet to feed us in the future. But but more significantly, I think, than bees, um, this shows you pictures of soil erosion, uh, which is another uh, thing that's, that's largely uh, a re- the result of intensive farming practices. It's been estimated that we're losing about 100 billion tons of topsoil every year. That's 15 tons per person on the planet every year. Uh, being much of it being washed into the sea. This rather strange picture here that looks like a jellyfish or something is an aerial shot from Madagascar. Showing that red stuff is the, soil in, the red soil in water in a river going out to sea. Um, and obviously if we, lo- if we lose our bees, if we lose the soil, um, these are pretty fundamental things that we need to grow food uh, to feed people. So there's a real danger that if we carry on down the route we're going down, then we're going to be in trouble. And I'll just just finish off by talking briefly, I've still got time, um, about this place, um, which I'm sure you recognise as Easter Island, and you, you probably, or some of you will be familiar with this story, and there are various versions of it, Um, but they're all broadly the same. So so Easter Island is the most remote inhabited island on the planet. Um, It's it's in the Pacific. It's uh, uh, it's about 10 miles across, um, and it was colonised by people, by Polynesians, about 800 years ago, sailing in dugout canoes eastwards across the Pacific. Um, And when they arrived, it it was a a subtropical forested island uh, with lots of flightless Birds, pigeons that were easy to catch and eat. Um, rich soils for growing crops in. Lots of fish in the sea. So they settled there. And they started clearing the forests to grow their crops. Um, they fished in the sea. They ate the flightless birds. And life was pretty good. The civilization there grew to about, have about 10,000 people. They had enough leisure time to make these bizarre monuments and drag these things from a central quarry in the middle of the island and arrange them Um, for purposes no-one's ever really understood. Um, But Easter Island was rediscovered by Europeans about 500 years after the Polynesians had colonised it. And at that point, the population was was estimated to have peaked at about 10,000 people. By the time Europeans rediscovered the islands, there were, no-one knows exactly how many, but somewhere between a few hundred and maybe a thousand or so people left on the island. All the trees had gone. Um, They'd cut down every single tree um, on the island, so they no longer had firewood, they no longer could build houses, they could no longer build boats to leave or go fishing. And without the trees, the soil had all washed away, um, so they couldn't grow crops anymore. Um, The flightless birds were all long since extinct, they'd eaten them all. Essentially, they'd used up all the resources on Easter Island, and their population had crashed, and they'd turned to cannibalism, and so on. And you can see why I'm telling you this. Um, Because one could argue that this is a a, a microcosm for what's happening in the world today. We are losing species uh, around the world. We are cutting down trees, we're cutting down the rainforest. Still, this has been an issue since I was a kid and before that, Um, which we're all aware of, just as the Easter Islanders, they must have known when they cut down the last tree, because it's only 10 miles from one end of the island to the other, but they still did it. Uh, We are still chopping down our rainforests, even though we know it's a really dumb thing to be doing. We are losing our soils, just as they did. Um, uh, So there's a real danger, of course, uh, that we might end up doing exactly what they did, undermining the ability of the planet to support us and our children into the future, um, which, of course, would be uh, tragic. And on that depressing note... um, (laughs) I should just put in a blatant plug for my books, which are outside, uh, on sale in the bookshop. And, and thank you all very much for, for listening to me.